Apple's making a credit card, Fortnite's giving away $30 million, and your airline is secretly filming you. This is Processing Power. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the fifth episode of Processing Power. My name is Bonjin. We have a lot of tech news to talk about today. Oh man, it's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day here in Los Angeles, California. I'm coming to you almost live from Adobe House Records. Uh, just um, recorded the other podcast, Dark Racial Humor. So, but now I'm ready to jump into this tech news so I can educate you guys on what's going on. Um, first off, Apple and Goldman Sachs will reportedly launch an iPhone-connected credit card. Oh, shit. What's, <laughs> what's going on there? This is a story from um, NPR.org. Apple will reportedly have a different kind of product launch later this year, a credit card jointly operated by Goldman Sachs. According to a report in the Wall Street Journal, the, court, the card will be integrated with the iPhone and offer features to track spending and points. The card would represent a move into new highly competitive terrain for both companies. Rather than just competing with other credit cards offering lots of points, the Apple and Goldman Sachs card may try to attract users with features that emphasize budget management. Executives have discussed borrowing visual cues from Apple's fitness tracking app where rings close and users hit daily exercise targets and sending users notifications about their spending habits, the journal reports. Okay, what's going on here? Because this, to me, sounds pretty cool, pretty phenomenal. Um, an Apple design credit card. Let's, uh, let's unpack this and think about how this would work fundamentally. Um... First of all, it would have to be 100% digital. There probably wouldn't be any card to begin with. Second of all, it would probably be utilized through Apple Pay. And third of all, it would probably be exclusive, well, of course it would be, to the iPhone, the Apple Watch, maybe perhaps the Mac. Um, but there's definitely a lot of potential here, especially if it, uh, especially if it has if it takes cues from the Apple Fitness app, which is a pretty good app, if I do say so myself, even though I don't use it anymore. Um, going back to the article, Apple's move to get a share of the credit card market would be amid a slide in iPhone sales, particularly in China. Last month, the technology company said that its Apple or its iPhone revenue declined 15% from the previous year. But... Its service businesses have been growing. In most its recent earnings report, report Apple trumpeted that services revenue hit $10.9 billion in all-time high. That includes revenue from the App Store, Apple Music, and Apple Pay. Though the journal notes, Apple Pay has been slow to catch on among users and merchants. Now, yes, it is very important to note that iPhone sales have been declining in China, and there are many reasons for this. Um, I believe one of the biggest being uh, a lack of innovation in the iPhone department and also growing competition in China with your Xiaomi and your HTC popular and your OnePlus popular handsets like that. Um, so, of course, Apple is really going to have to uh, push its services 
department um, with these lacking iPhone sales. Um, but I do think a, a credit card would be widely adopted, maybe? I don't know. It's hard to think because apparently Apple Pay isn't being widely adopted. People just don't want to put their credit cards on iPhones, even though it is pretty convenient. Maybe it's a privacy issue. But yeah, um, it would be cool if they did introduce some groundbreaking features like, I don't know, a, w a way that people could budget their money more effectively um, and a point system that you could use toward other products, specifically Apple products and services, would be pretty, pretty cool too. So um, yeah, we'll just uh, have to wait and see where this uh, story goes. Yeah, that was from NPR.org. By the way, the next story comes from Engadget.com, and it's titled "Don't Buy a Phone." Fuck, don't buy a phone for 5G. Okay, let's see what they have to say, Mr. Daniel Cooper. It's possible to be excited by the potential of 5G, and yet not thrilled about not having a the ha oh goodness about not having to buy a new phone, a new device to use it. After all, this time around, the standard isn't as transformative as the leap from 2G to 3G or from 3G to 4G. Well, first of all, I disagree right there. The leap from 4G to 5G will be ridiculous. You wouldn't believe that from Samsung's press event last night, which boasted how great 5G and its new 5G handset will make our lives. To take advantage of the speed and the extra capacity 5G offers, Samsung hopes that we'll buy the all-new Galaxy S10 5G. The phone is a larger S10 with a bigger screen, longer-lasting battery, and crucially, a 5G modem. But there are two issues with this, one of which the sheer lack of 5G infrastructure currently operational. By the time the handset debuts on Verizon, 5G will be usable in a handful of big cities like Houston, LA, Sacramento, where Big Red offers 5G broadband. The company has announced that by the end of 2019, 5G will be available in 30 American cities. If you're hoping to use the phone across the US, you'll have to wait two to three years to do so. That's how long it took to get a 4G majority, 4G to the majority of American cities. And by that point, you want to upgrade anyway. In cities like native Korea, the first 5G tests are underway, with consumer rollouts beginning in the next month or so. So, all right, so, basically right off the bat, this guy is saying that 5G is not a big deal. 5G is a huge deal, and I will tell you why. 5G is like fiber connectivity on your phone. Not only will it connect you to fucking cell phone towers, it'll make cars talk to each other, It'll make literally everything talk to each other. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be nuts. Secondly, he says that you need a 5G modem in order to access 5G. This is true. If some of you may recall, AT&T has been advertising this product called 5GE or 5G Evolution. That is not 5G. That is basically 4G LTE with another name. Sprint is actually suing them 
for false advertising. So uh, we are currently waiting to see where that goes. Second of all, he's saying that Samsung is trying to make you buy the new 5G smartphone. I don't believe that's true. I believe they're just offering it for power users that want to purchase it. If you live in rural Mexico, you're probably not going to buy the Samsung 5G because there probably won't be 5G connectivity there for a couple years. But if you live in Los Angeles or New York or Houston and you have disposable income and you want to test out 5G at the consumer level, then this might be the phone for you. Um, kind of feel like he's making a big deal out of nothing. Samsung has, over the past couple iterations in terms of innovation, really been the first to try new things, especially with the Note series and the, the what's it called? The Galaxy Edge series. Those were first of their kind phones, and now people are uh, copying the designs, so. We'll just see. We'll just see about that. Um, let's go back to this article. See what else he has to say. Samsung and every other mobile handset manufacturer is entitled to offer you a 5G handset. Yes, they are. But you're under no obligation to buy one. Yeah, that's what I said too. Last night, the company's Drew Blackard even said that the 5G revolution won't happen overnight especially since the number of compatible devices is so small. AT&T's 5G rollout, for instance, is currently only compatible with select mobile hotspots. And we won't talk about the faux 5G either. By the time that 5G is practical reality and available across the U.S., we'll be one or two whole device cycles further ahead. By that point, a 5G modem will be standard, not something you need to get out of your way to buy and then not be able to use. So yeah, that was from Engadget.com. Thanks, Mr. Daniel Cooper. We're going to take a quick break. Um, we'll be right back after a quick commercial with uh, more uh, fascinating tech stories on this wonderful Friday. This is Process of Power. with a couple more stories um, this next one's really good this is from The Verge by Mr. John Porter discovery of cameras built into airline seats sparks privacy concerns cameras pointed at passengers have been noticed in the in-flight entertainment systems used by some American Airlines and Singapore Airlines aircraft BuzzFeed News reports both airlines have confirmed that the cameras exist, but they say they were included with off-the-shelf parts from manufacturers who have not, which have not been activated. <coughs> the airlines also confirmed that they have no plans to use them in the future. The cameras were originally spotted 
on a Singapore Airlines flight by Twitter user at Vicamaluk. And BuzzFeed News said, also found that one of its own former employees had seen a camera in an American Airlines flight. Their existence dates back to at least June 2007, when they can be spotted in pictures of an American Airlines plane post from the points guy. Just found this interesting sensor looking at me from the seat back on board of Singapore Airlines. Any expert opinion on whether this is a camera? Perhaps at Singapore Air could clarify how it's used. From Vitaly Kamaluk on Twitter. Although the airline said in question that the cameras are inactive, they still present a privacy risk. Yeah, no shit. Any camera attached to a connected device has at least some risk of being hacked. And while an aircraft is at least accessible than an internet-connected laptop, there's still a possibility of being compromised. In a statement given to BuzzFeed, a spokesperson from American Airlines said that the cameras were included by the original manufacturer to allow for possible future uses such as hand gesture control to in-flight entertainment. However, both American Airlines and Singapore Airlines said that they had chosen to disable the cameras. It's similar to a problem to the microphone problem that was recently discovered in Nest's security system. We talked about this a couple days ago on the show. Google originally included the microphone to allow it to add future functionality, which it did when it enabled Google Assistant support. But the company didn't originally disclose that the microphone was present. Google has since clarified that this was done in error, quote unquote, considering the private information these microphones may overhear. It's not good enough to disclose these kinds of details. Okay. What's going on here? I say everyone that joined that flies American Airlines or Singapore Airlines should be extremely skeptical because you're probably being filmed while you're on the plane. That is some shady stuff, man. Like straight up. Especially after this whole Google shipping out X amount of Nest home devices and not telling people there's a microphone on it. Protect yourselves. <laughs> no, nah, I'm just kidding. I don't know. Um, their excuse was uh, was like, I guess, pretty valid, but still. Um... I feel like there should be a, a little independent investigation, maybe, you know, so we can, like, get to the bottom of this. Because, you know, privacy is a basic human right, according to Tim Cook, which I agree with. So, you know, let's put these let's put these airlines in their place. Before we uh, wrap up the show, we're going to get started. We're going to um, end with, with a little bit more Apple news. So, Apple plans on combining iPhone, iPad, and Mac apps by 2021. This is great. This is from Bloomberg.com by Mark Gurman. Apple Inc. wants to make it easier for software coders to create tools, games, and other applications for its main devices in one fell swoop. An overhaul designed to encourage app development and ultimately boost revenue. <coughs> The aim of a multi-step initiative, the aim of the multi-step initiative, codenamed Marzipan, is known by 
is that by 2021, developers will be able to build an app once and have it work on the iPhone, iPad, and Mac computers. People familiar with the effort said. That should spur the creation of new software, increasing the utility of the computer's gadgets. Each new app is another revenue opportunity for Apple because it takes a cut of many app-related purchases and subscriptions. The company has positioned its services division as a major growth area. It plans to announce two new services, a premium Apple News subscription offering and original video content initiative at the end of March, Bloomberg reported recently. So, as we were talking about earlier on the show, iPhone sales are declining. Apple's like, what can we do to boost up this revenue? We got to push the services. We got to get people to pull out their wallets and buy stuff while they're using their iPhones that they dis- that they don't want to throw away. So, I essentially allowing developers to create one app but make it compatible across all three devices, Mac, iPhone, and iPad. That makes it easier for apps to gain new users, keep users, make money, and in return, Apple gets a cut. And developers are also more inclined to make new apps and think of new innovative ideas if they know that their app will be utilized across more devices. For example, what if Uber just worked on your iPad and your Mac instead of just your phone? Boom, one app store across all devices, and everything just works. I love it. Let's do it. Good job, Apple. It's about time. (coughs) If you recall, um, Android's been trying to do this for a couple years with its... Um, terribly famous Chrome OS. If you're not familiar with Chrome OS, it currently is the operating system for Android tablets and laptops. It uh, houses the Play Store, which can download Android applications as well as Chrome applications. And when you run an Android application on an Android laptop, it's fucking terrible. Yes. So, you know, there's just like a lot of just bugs in that ecosystem and it really just diminishes the user experience. But what the hell do I know? I haven't really used them in an Android tablet in like five years, so I would love to try out the Pixel Slate, see see what all the hype's about there. Um But yeah, uh I'm really curious to see how Apple uh implements this change. Hopefully they do it smoothly. Hopefully it's just like a solid app experience. You can like stop like what you're doing on your iPhone, go to your iPad, then go to your Mac. Oh, thank you so much. You're the best. And then go to your Mac and just continue the experience. And the coder has to do minimal effort because he only has to uh, code for one app as opposed to making three separate applications. I think that's great. Good on you, Apple. Sweet. Okay. I think that's all the stories I had for today. Um, oh, wait. No, we have one more. We have one more, people. Don't worry. 
Found one more. Thanks, thanks to the assistant for emailing emailing me this hard hitting story. Last minute from the Verge. Fortnite's thirty million dollar World Cup final is happening in July. The much anticipated Fortnite World Cup is finally happening this summer, and there's going to be a lot of money up for grabs. Today, developer Epic detailed the upcoming esports event, which will culminate in a final tournament at an undisclosed location in New York from July 26th to the 28th. The multi-day event will feature what is possibly the biggest prize pool in esports history, with a total of $30 million up for grabs, including $3 million to the solo champion. In comparison, last year's International Dota 2 tournament, typically the most lucrative esports competitive, featured a $25 million prize pool. Participants in the Fortnite World Cup will have to be at least 13 years of age to qualify. Damn. That's a lot of money for Fortnite. If I was like 13 right now, I still wouldn't be in the Fortnite. Uh, my parents wouldn't let me play it. Pro- Actually, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe they would. Um, Tamar, I need you. Uh, We have a Fortnite expert here. Um, He, he just uh, happens to work at the studio, so we're going to get a quick interview. Uh, Tamar, what do you know about this $30 million Fortnite World Cup? Well, uh... I don't know anything about this because I stopped playing Fortnite, but I think they're doing this because Fortnite is uh, slowly going down. Oh, really? Yeah, because this new Battle Royale, Apex, shout out Apex, everyone's starting to play that. So they first started out with all these free challenges to get a free battle pass, and now they're probably doing this free cup to get people to play this to get money. Why is Apex better than Fortnite? It's more uh, realistic, and people can't, like, you know... I'll build you. Ah, I see. Um, do you know how many users Apex has? Uh, no, not yet. Just came out. Who Who is the maker of Apex? That is also a good question. EA. EA. Is a is a so it's basically just the same game, just like a different skin. Yeah, more uh, realistic. You can't build. It's not so much like, you know, stupid. Oh, I see. Well, all right. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking your time to come onto Processing Power. All right, ladies and gentlemen, um, thank you for listening to today's episode. Um, it was a good one. It was a good one. It was a good one. Um, have a good weekend, and we'll be back here on Monday for more Processing Power on Bond Jones.